It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas at Sagebrush. Take some time out of the hustle and bustle of the holiday season and join us as we celebrate our one true hope, Jesus. Mark your calendars and bring the whole family together on December 23rd or 24th to remember the real reason for the season. There's a Sagebrush location in your neighborhood. Just go to sagebrush.church Christmas to find one near you. Don't miss out. Invite your friends and family. And this Christmas, let's make memories that last a lifetime. We can't wait to see you this year for Christmas at Sagebrush. Visit sagebrush.church Christmas for all the details. So make sure you pick a day and a time to come to Christmas Eve. Think about who you're going to invite. And here's what I would do for you is I would say, whatever you invite, show them this times, and then they get to pick what time. Because that's what Christmas is about, is you inviting your friend to the best friend that you have ever had. And you want to be as accommodating to them as you possibly can be. So let's, let's pack the place for all seven services. Now, on this weekend, we're also having our Christmas Eve baptisms. So if you haven't been baptized and you're like, you know, I've been putting that off. I need to get that done. I love Jesus. Now I need to proclaim my life and love to him in front of my church family. We want you to do that this Christmas Eve. It's really easy to sign up. You can go to the First Steps room. You can call or text us at 505-922-9200. Or you can use the Sagebrush app. Hit the icon, Decisions, fill out the information, tell us that you want to be baptized on Christmas Eve, and one of our pastors will get in contact with you. Friends, this is our chance to spread the message of Jesus like never before. And of course, tonight we're doing the tree lighting stuff that's happening. I, I, this is like a typical 4 o'clock service right now, isn't it? A little larger than normal, right? We're going to do the Christmas tree lighting afterwards, and then all the month of December is Christmas under the stars. An opportunity for you to bring your friends to the campus with you, walk around the beauty of all the lights and the special things that we've done. There's a big projection thing that we're going to be showing tonight uh, that explains the, the birth, the life, the, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. It's going to be on the front of the student center over there off of Coors. And so you want to make sure that you get a chance to look at that. Many people who watched it last night began to make a list of people. They said, you know what, we're going to stop at Starbucks. We're going to stop at Dutch Brothers or whatever that place is, the sugary drink place, all right? And, and then we're going, to, we're going to come and we're going to walk around with our friends and we're going to watch that together. This is your opportunity. That family member, that friend you've been praying for, use the church to reach one more person for Jesus Christ. All right, let's pray and then we'll get into the message. Dear Heavenly Father, use us in ways that we never even dreamed possible. Uh, Lord, uh, it, it, it upsets us to think that family members, friends, co-workers, classmates are going to spend their eternity apart from you because they don't understand how good you are and they don't understand how much you love them and the plans and purposes that you have for their life. They don't understand that you died to set them free and that you rose again from the dead. So God, I pray that we would be messengers of your truth and of your grace and Lord, that you would use us to impact one person's life this Christmas season. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> well, we are beginning a brand new series today called The X Factor 
of friendship, so you couldn't have picked a better weekend to show up because we're starting this series. I hope you'll show up for the next two weeks of this series as well. Uh, it was the phone call that nobody ever wants to get. I was busy working over as a student pastor at Hoffmantown Church. I was a student pastor there for four and a half years before we started this church. I had just left about three months before a church in Kansas City, Missouri. I got a phone call from one of my former students explained to me that three of my students who had just graduated and were now going to college, all three of these kids had died tragically in a car accident. Uh, the young man who was driving fell asleep. The highway was a two-lane highway. Those are very, very dangerous. And when he fell asleep, he veered over into the other lane, and coming the other direction at just the wrong time was a semi-truck. There were five kids between the ages of 18 and 21 in that vehicle, and all five of those kids perished. And a brother and a sister were two of the five, and that was the only two children that that family had. So here's the question I pose to you. What do you say to a family in a time of need like that? Please tell me you don't pull out Romans 8.28. In the midst of their shock and their terror and their horrifying situation, please don't say that you look at them and say, hey, we know that God works all things together for the good, for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. I don't think they want to hear that verse at that moment in time. And, and, and please don't try to explain to them why God would allow such a tragedy to happen. You don't have that answer. I don't have that answer either. And please don't be so callous as to say, well, you know what? It's all going to be okay. No, it's not. It's not going to be okay. Their reality, their life, everything about their future will be changed from this moment on. So what do you do in the midst of that? Will you be a friend to them? And what's a friend do in a situation like that? They sit there. They pray for them. They pray with them when it's appropriate. They weep with them. They're still before them. You know, you know what I say uh, about friendship? This is a great definite friendship. A, a friend is someone who walks in when everybody else walks out. Isn't that a great definition of friendship? A friend is someone who walks in when everybody else walks out. Well, we're starting this series on friendship, and I think it's an appropriate topic, don't you? Because the latest statistics tell us that there are more lonely people than ever before. I mean, right now in this room, and right now people watching from home, they are lonely. They don't have friends. You can be in a room this size, surrounded by all kinds of people, and nobody knows you. You're not close to anybody. You face every life circumstance on your own, and there's an emptiness inside you and a loneliness inside you. So I want to talk about friendships. Friendships that last. Friendships that are forged in the fire. Friendships that stand the test of time. Friendships, people that you can count on no matter what might come in your life. And we're also going to talk about how to be that kind of a friend and where to find that kind of friend. So we're going to look at a friendship in the New Testament. It's between Paul and Barnabas. Now this is one of the most unlikely friendships that you'll find in Scripture. And there's a good reason for that. Before Paul was Paul, his name was Saul. And Saul was not a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, he was the number one enemy of the early church. He would gather papers together. He would go from one house to another. He would try to find anybody who claimed to be a Christian to have that person in prison. 
He, he, would, he would even stand there and, and, and be joyous over the fact that, that someone was going to die because of the cause of Jesus Christ. Now, here's what's interesting. You'll see this a lot in the New Testament. These Jewish leaders, these Jewish religious, they get fired up about Christians, don't they? They, they, they try to stop people from becoming a follower of Jesus. There was a reason for that. For a Jewish person, being Jewish was more than just their faith. Being Jewish was their culture, it was their nationality, it was their identity. And so in their minds, when someone turned away from the one true God, they did everything in their power to get them to try to change their mind. They would use any means necessary. And when I mean, say any means necessary, I mean it. Oh, oh, they would throw these people into jail because they proclaimed that Jesus had risen again from the dead. They would stir up riots so that these Christians would be killed. They would displace them from their homes and, and they wouldn't do business with them any longer. And Saul was the best of the best. When people found out that Saul was in town, Christians scattered. Christians hid. They didn't want anything to do with him. My goodness, in Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8, who's the one giving approval to the first Christian martyr, Stephen's death? It was Saul. They laid their garments down by Saul as he gave approval to having someone killed for proclaiming that Jesus had risen again from the dead. So I got, I got Saul on one side, a guy who hates Christians, and I got Barnabas on the other side who's a Jew who loves Jesus. This doesn't seem like a natural friendship, does it? And Barnabas isn't someone who just claims to be a follower of Christ. This guy is fully devoted. He's all in. He's so in that he sold a piece of land, gave all the money to the disciples to fund the message of Jesus Christ. So the question you got to be asking yourself at this point in time is how in the world did these two unlikely people become friends? Well, the story is told in Acts chapter 9 as to what happened. Let's look at it. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so if he found any of those who belonged to the way. That's what the early Christian movement was called. It was called the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. Anyone who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go in the city and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and he didn't eat or drink anything. All right, so Jesus stops Saul in his tracks, says, why in the world are you persecuting me? He blinds him, and guess what? Saul becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, word gets out about this. I mean, you got the number one guy who's persecuting Christians all of a sudden becoming a Christian. And word gets out about this, and the disciples hear about it, and they're not so certain about it. Come on, friends, it would be the equivalent of Osama bin Laden when he was alive becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. You'd be a little bit skeptical, right, that he turned away from Allah and turned away from, from a Muslim to, to follow Jesus. Well, that's what the disciples say. This is a setup. That's all this is. Saul is acting like he's a Christian, but he's not legit. 
He's not the real deal. He's just trying to get us to come out of hiding. That's what he's trying to do. So the disciples were very leery, but they had to check it out. So guess who they sent to check out the claims of Saul to see if he was a Christian or not? They sent Barnabas to check it out. And Barnabas had conversations with Saul, and his conclusion was that he was legitimate, that he was the real deal. He even vouched for Saul to the rest of the disciples. But they weren't having it, friends. In fact, Saul was kind of put on the back burner, kind of put on the bench over here for the next eight years. Now, here's the first X factor of friendship. Write this down. A great friend is an encourager to you. I like to put it this way. They see things in you that you don't see in yourself. They breathe life into you, and they give you hope into your dreams. Now, the question is, is do you have a friend like that? Or are you a friend like that? I love, I used to love watching uh, the NBA when the NBA was good. And uh, that was years ago. And I remember when I was a young man, I'll date myself just a little bit. It was Larry Bird versus Magic Johnson. Boston Celtics versus the Lakers. How many of you guys remember those great series? You are super old with me. All right, that's, that's right. Some of you guys are like, who are that? I don't know who that is. Well, on Larry Bird's team, the Boston Celtics, there was a guy by the name of Kevin McHale. He's a Hall of Famer. He was a phenomenal basketball player. And his coach was a guy by the name of Casey Jones. Well, Kevin McHale writes in his book about how Casey Jones operated the team. This is what he writes. He said, after every loss or whenever somebody had taken a bad shot, at the end of the game, Casey Jones, our coach, would be the first one to walk over, pat the guy on the back, and say, don't worry, we'll get him next time. But he never came up to you after you did something great. So I asked him about it one night. And he said, Kevin, after you've made the winning basket or you've got 15,000 people cheering for you, television stations come at you and everybody's giving you high fives. You don't need me then. When you need a real friend is when you feel like nobody likes you. Well, that's the way it was for Saul. Nobody liked him. Nobody wanted anything to do with him. For the next eight years, he's kind of sitting around wondering if he's ever going to get into the game. Well, I can't prove this, but I think Barnabas continued a conversation with him from long distance just to make sure he was doing okay, just to check up on him from time to time. Now, how do I, how do I know that that might be true? Well, Acts chapter 11, here's what happens. Some well-meaning Christian goes to Gentile territory. Now, this was key because in the New Testament, the Jewish Christians believed that Jesus only died for the Jew. They didn't think that he died for the Gentile. And for those of you who are new to church, Gentile just means somebody who's not Jewish. They thought that somebody who wasn't Jewish was nothing more than a dog. They weren't worthy of salvation. Well, somebody goes to Gentile territory and begins to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ. And these people are so overwhelmed with the goodness of God that he would send his only son to die for them and rise again from the dead that all of a sudden there's a revival that takes place. Well, the disciples hear about this. They're kind of scratching their heads like we've never heard anything like this in our life. Could it be? Could it be that Jesus came for people who weren't Jewish? Could it be that God loves all people? So guess who they sent to go check it out? They sent Barnabas to check it out. This is what the Bible says. He was glad when he got there, and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. And then look at verse 23 of chapter 11 of Acts. And it says, then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. All right, so I want you to get this. So Barnabas travels 100 miles by foot to get to Saul. 
And I don't know for certain what he said to him, but I, I think it went something like this. It's time for you to get off your derriere. It's time for you to get in the game. God's given you gifts and talents and abilities. I need you. I'm overwhelmed in this city of Gentiles giving their lives to Jesus Christ. I need you to help me right now. And Saul says, I'll go with you. So they head back to that town, and they have fruitful ministry. Well, guess what? All those uh, Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day, they didn't appreciate that Saul was doing this. And so Saul now becomes public enemy number one to all the Jewish religious leaders, and they try to kill him. They try to kill him again and again and again. And who's the one who's by his side? Barnabas is the one who's by his side. Well, the early church saw the tight bond between Saul and between Barnabas. And they said, you know what? We need to send some people to go from town to town to spread the message of Jesus Christ. And they said, you guys have got such a tight bond. We're going to send you out. This is what the Bible says. When the church was worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them off. Here's the second factor of a great friendship. A great friend has a great bond with you. You say, what do you mean by that? The depth of the bond that you have with someone else is the depth of the friendship that you have with that person. You see, some of us have friends and you're expecting more out of that friendship, but you don't have a depth of bond where you should be expecting something that great from that person. Let, 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 me, let me try to explain what I'm talking about. When I was in college, I played basketball, and I love basketball. I played basketball all the time. This is back when I had knees, okay? Played basketball, played basketball. I had friends. I could call on the phone, 10, 15, 20 friends. I'd say, hey, let's all meet at the gym. Let's play some five-on-five, four-on-four, whatever it is. Make it, take it. Team what wins stays on the court. Loser sits on the sidelines. Let's go play some basketball. They were my basketball friends. And when my team lost, which was rare, when my team lost, we would sit over on the sidelines and we would talk. What do you think we talked about? Do you, you think we talked about spiritual things? No, those guys didn't want to talk about spiritual things. We talked about basketball. We talked about girls. We talked about tennis shoes. We talked about stuff like that. We had surfacey conversations. Well, one day when we were playing basketball, I'm on a fast break, and this knee decides to go backwards rather than the right way it's supposed to bend. And I can't even turn my end of my foot because it's not attached now to where my middle of my leg is. And my so-called friends had me crawl off the basketball court. And the only thing they wanted to know was, were you fouled when you got hurt? <laughs> These were my basketball friends. And when I couldn't play basketball anymore, guess what? Those friendships dried up. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. you got work friends, don't you? You love those work friends. You hang out with those work friends at work. You work on projects. You get along with those people. But if you change jobs, are you going to stay in contact with them? For most of us, you're not. Because the only thing you have in common with them, the deepest bond that you have is that job. And so when you change jobs, you leave those friendships behind. What was the bond that Paul and Barnabas had? Or Saul and Barnabas had? It was Jesus Christ. Jesus was the thing that they had in common. He was the glue that held the two of them together. And so they go off on this missionary journey, right? And Jesus is right by their side in their minds, okay? 
and they take along with them this young man named John Mark, and they, they head off from one town to another. I'm just going to kind of walk you through where they went and what they went through. We'll look it up on the screen, too. Here's a map for you, okay? They start in Antioch. Antioch's where they began, and that's where they're prayed over, and they set sail. They go to the island of Cyprus. This is where Barnabas is from, and they preach in the synagogue there, but they don't have very much success. The next stop, and I'm going to butcher every one of these names, the next stop is Paphos. Paphos. I said it right. Paphos. This, you wouldn't know, would you? To be honest, okay? This is where the Roman proconsul Sergius Paulus lives. Look at what happens in this town. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elemus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elemus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. And when the proconsul saw what happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. You think? You see a guy stricken blind right in front of you, I think you're going to trust Jesus to be the leader and forgiver of your life, don't you think? Well, they leave from there, and they set sail for Perga. Now, Perga is where John Mark takes off. We don't know what happened to John Mark. We'll talk more about this next week. But I guess John Mark was kind of a mama's boy, kind of a wuss. He didn't want to continue on the journey. Maybe got a little bit homesick. I don't know what's wrong with John Mark, but he, he takes out. And then Paul and Barnabas now travel 100 miles by foot, and they head to Pisidian Antioch. Now, this is probably why John Mark went back home. He didn't want to do the 100-mile hike to get there. But when they get there, they begin to preach about Jesus rising again from the dead. And everybody's kind of interested in what they're talking about. And they invite them to come back the next week. But some of those Jewish leaders didn't like the fact that they were talking about Jesus rising again from the dead. And the next week, they tried to start a riot and tried to kill Saul and Barnabas. So they take out of that city, obviously, and they head for Iconium. And when they get to Iconium, many people give their lives over to Jesus Christ. There's great excitement there. But then all of a sudden, they're threatened once again by the Jewish leaders to be killed by stoning. So they head out of Iconium, and they go to Lystra. And when they get to Lystra, Paul notices that there's a lame man that's there. He heals the lame man. These were people who worshipped the Greek gods. And so they believed that Saul and Barnabas were Greek gods. Uh, they said that uh, uh, Barnabas was Zeus and that uh, Saul was Hermes because he was the spokesperson for Zeus. So they begin to bow down before these two guys. And these two guys say, hey, man, 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 don't bow down before us. Bow down before Jesus. So it looks like they're going to have great success. But those people who have been following them from one town to another, those Jewish leaders, they show up. And he turns the tide against them. And it's in this town that Saul is stoned to death. 
They took him out, threw him in a pit, took softball-sized rocks, boulder-sized rocks, and heaved them upon him until he died. And Barnabas is standing like, what am I going to do now? My, 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 my friend, my, my co-partner here is under a pile of rocks. And then after a few minutes, and I don't know how many minutes it was, all of a sudden the rocks began to move. And God raised Saul back to life again. Now, friends, let me ask you a question. If you just got beaten down and murdered by a group of people, would you head back into that same town again? Because these guys had stupid written across their forehead because that's exactly what they did. Now, thankfully, they were smart enough not to stay more than overnight. And then they took off and they went to Derby. And this is where Timothy heard the message of Jesus Christ. And he becomes the one that Paul or Saul is going to pass the baton off to. So here's my third point. You ready for this? Great friendships are forged in the fire. Listen, when you get stoned with your friend, Some of you were drifting out. I wanted to bring you back. He says, Stone? This is an awesome church, man. (laughs) Friendships are forged in the fire. When life knocks you down. When you don't think you can take another breath. To know that that person has your back. To know that that person will be there for you. To have somebody in your life who made promises and vows to you that no matter what, they're going to be there for you. I love what Lewis Smead says about promises. He says, somewhere people still make and keep promises. They choose not to quit when the going gets rough because they promised once to see it through. They stick to lost causes. They hold on to love grown cold. They stay with people who have become pains in the neck. They still dare to make promises and care enough to keep the promises they make. I want to say to you that if you have a ship, you will not desert. If you have people, you will not forsake. If you have causes, you will not abandon. Then you're like God. What a marvelous thing a promise is. When a person makes a promise, she reaches out in the unpredictable future and makes one thing predictable. She will be there even when being there costs her more than she wants to pay. When a person makes a promise, he stretches himself out in the circumstances that no one can control and controls at least one thing. He will be there no matter what the circumstances turn out to be. With one simple word of promise, a person creates an island of certainty in a sea of uncertainty. That's what Paul and Barnabas had. No one knew what was going to go on when they went from one town to the other. They didn't know how things were going to go. Were they going to be received well? Were they going to be threatened with their life? Would they be stoned to death? Here's the deal. They only knew two things for sure. They knew that Jesus was with them. And they knew their brother wouldn't walk out on them. And they held on to that. With every fiber of their being. You see, I, I don't think that Paul and Barnabas had what you call a, a, a casual friendship. Casual friendships, all, all they do is they just talk about superficial things. They, they talk about casual things. It's like, it's like Dallas Cowboy fans. You know, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> kind of, 
hey, don't shoot the messenger, okay? But let me talk to the Dallas Cowboy football fans for just a second here. How about Dak Prescott? Yeah, that's impressive, isn't it? I mean, he's playing like he should be in the MVP conversation, don't you think? That dude is on fire. Wait till the playoffs. I, I don't think that that was a big concern for Paul and Barnabas. Let me talk to the ladies for just a second. Have you seen the sales lately? I mean, purses are at an all-time low. Do you understand what I'm saying? And their shoes, ladies, their shoes that go with those purses. Do you understand what I'm talking about right now? How much of your time is just spent talking about the dumbest stuff? that doesn't matter, that doesn't count, that doesn't last. And I know we need to have some of it, but for some of us, that's all you got. And then all hell breaks loose around you, and your whole world begins to fall apart, and you look at what you think are your closest friends, and you find out you don't have a depth of friendship with them because you never invested in anything that was greater than the latest current event or how the weather was or what the fashion trends were or what you saw on a TikTok. And then you wonder why you're so alone. You wonder why you keep facing life on your own. Do you have anybody that you can count on? Do you have anybody in your life that you can confide in and they will be a black hole for you? They won't share the stuff with somebody else and they're the one that walks in when everybody else walks out? And do you have a bond with that person that is based upon the Lord Jesus Christ? Because I think when Paul and Barnabas sat down, they talked. I don't think they talked about Dak Prescott and the impressive record of the Dallas Cowboys this year. I don't think they talked about the, I don't know, the one, two, three, three-time Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs. I don't think they talked about that either. I think they talked about how can we leverage our life for the kingdom of God? How can we give a little bit more and spur each other on to being a difference maker and to leaving our piece of this world in better shape than the way that they found it? I think they looked at each other and said, how can we depend on each other just a little bit more? How can I be there for you? How can I pray for you? How can I help you reach the heights and the dreams that God has placed in your heart and in your soul. i got to ask you a question. You got any friends like that? Are you a friend like that? You say, Todd, I don't have anybody like that. I don't, even, I don't even know where to find somebody like that. That's not true. Because how many times have I begged you to get into a small group? And 30% of our adult population has taken the chance, and they have found the best friends they've ever found in their life. And now that common bond that they have with those people in their small group is based upon Jesus. Can I tell you something about our small group ministry? When life goes crazy for people, when, when everything falls apart, the staff at the church are, generally speaking, the last people to find out about that. Do you know why? Because they call their small group leader. 
And they say, this is what's happened. This is what's going on. And the small group leader immediately prays for them. Says, how can we come alongside you? How can we help you? Then he gets on the phone with all the different people and says, this tragedy has happened. This situation has happened. We need to pray for this couple. We need to pray for this person. My goodness, how many times has a pastoral care pastor gone to the hospital after there's been a tragedy and they're the last one to arrive and the entire small group has already beaten us there? They're looking out for each other. They're praying for each other. They're spurring each other on. And their bond is on Jesus Christ. Just a few weeks, we're going to start a new year. You're going to make New Year's resolutions. What if you resolved to invest yourself really in friendship? And that you went after being friends and you put yourself in positions to be friends with people who have a common bond with you. Who love Jesus with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, and all their strength. Or just keep doing it the way you've been doing it. Just keep struggling. Keep trying to figure it out. Keep depending upon people who aren't dependable. Or place yourself in a position to find those kinds of friends. And then work this next year into being that kind of friend. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we need this, and we know that we need this, but Lord, we're looking for friendship in all the wrong places. Lord, you have gathered us together with the common bond of you. What kind of friendships could we have? What kind of friend could we be? Lord, I pray that there will never be another lonely person that comes to this place or watches us from home. Lord, that we would be vulnerable to take a risk and to take a chance to get into a small group and to find friends like we never had before. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.